The opioid crisis continues to claim lives in Canada and in the province of Ontario. It has been made much worse by the pandemic. Recently, the federal government pledged $20 million for naloxone kits and overdose training. That is not very much money. It is a move to try and help. Give you a sense of the scope of the tragedy, there have been an estimated 16,364 opioid-related deaths in Canada between 2016 and March of 2020. That's according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. Now, the origins of the opioid crisis are complicated. But many agree that one of the main elements was the introduction and marketing of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma, owned and controlled by the Sackler family. And in his new book, Empire of Pain, author and journalist Patrick Radden Keefe looks at how Purdue and the Sacklers profited from OxyContin as a health crisis unfolded all around them. Welcome to the program, Patrick Radden Keefe. Perhaps we'll begin with how Oxy was developed and how it was marketed and, and beca- how did it become so successful? Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, OxyContin was was originally uh, rolled out in 1996, and it was a, a, a an opioid, so so derived from the opium poppy, uh, but with a new kind of marketing push. So up to that point, doctors in North America had been fairly um, reluctant to prescribe strong opioids too widely to patients because there was a fear that these drugs could be quite addictive. And so they would restrict them really for severe pain, uh, for cancer pain, end-of-life care, those types of situations. And Purdue Pharma set out to launch a drug that could be used for moderate pain as well. So it could be used by a much, much broader community of people suffering from different types of pain. And the way they did that was to claim that the drug was not addictive. In your book, you decided to tell it through the lens of multi-generations of the Sackler family. I'm wondering why you decided to approach this story that way. Well, there have been a number of very good books written about the opioid crisis. I didn't want to write an opioid crisis book per se. I was very intrigued by the idea that you had this family which controlled the company and had made billions and billions of dollars, really becoming one of the wealthiest families in the world on the, on the sale of this drug that has such a complex and dark legacy. But as I pushed into the history of the family and looked at the first generation, these three physician brothers from Brooklyn, New York, the children of immigrants, who uh, became doctors and businessmen, and in the 1950s got involved in the marketing of pharmaceuticals, I thought there was a a longer story that you could tell, a kind of a family saga tracing three generations of this family and the impact that they had on medicine, uh, you know, in in the United States and Canada, but all around the world. There have been some uh, recent developments in terms of court cases. The province of Ontario is uh, part of a uh, number of provincial governments that have filed uh, claims totaling $67.4 billion U.S. against Purdue Pharma. Uh, where are we in terms of the settlement and the impact on the Sackler family? Well, there has been a, a real storm of litigation, as you as you suggest, in recent years. I think in, in the U.S., uh, I think 49 states are suing 
the company, almost every state, and roughly half of the states are suing not just the company, but individual members of the Sackler family who sat on the board of this company. So you have this this spectacle, which is that the the company has twice pled guilty to federal criminal charges in the U.S., once in 2007, and again, actually late last year. Uh, but the family has always said, you know, we, we, we've done nothing wrong. We admit no wrongdoing. They're very uh, defensive and insist that they have nothing to apologize for. Um, over the period of about a decade, they started taking money out of the company. As it became clear that you were going to have more and more lawsuits against Purdue, very quietly, the family was pulling out $400 million here, $500 million there, for a total of more than $10 billion that they pulled out of the company. And then eventually, when there was hardly anything left in the coffers, they kicked the company into bankruptcy and said, well, it, nothing much we can do about these lawsuits now because the company's bankrupt. So the question now is whether the family will be held to account. They've made a proposed settlement where they would put up uh, about $4 billion to help address the opioid crisis. They would admit no wrongdoing, and they would be released from any of these lawsuits against them in the future. And some states seem inclined to take that. $4 billion is a lot of money. Others feel that that's not nearly enough. Uh, you yourself, in writing this book, uh, uh, faced um, a lot of pushback, perhaps I shall say, from the, the Sackler family. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that and, and if you've had any reaction from the Sackler family recently. Uh, yeah, pushback is one word for it. Um, <laughs> the, they've been threatening to sue me since before I started writing the book. They really did not want this book to be written um, you know, they didn't cooperate with me, and, and some one branch of the family really actively was fairly antagonistic. Private investigators staking out my house. It's been a long process. Um, I ended up, when I was finishing the book, going to them with a very long list of extremely detailed queries uh, for them to comment on, and they, they basically boycotted that process. They chose not to confirm or deny many of my questions. Um, I have not heard from them since the book came out. I mean, I think their their move has generally been to try and impugn my integrity as a journalist um, rather than address the specific claims in the book, because I think, um, you know, I was able to gather tens of thousands of pages of, of internal documents and build my story largely on the basis of this paper trail of their own emails. So it, it's quite hard, actually, to refute the substance of the book. And some of those emails that you find do things like, uh, cast uh, into very clear doubt their claims about when uh, Purdue Pharma realized that OxyContin was being abused as a street drug. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so for a long time, uh, both Purdue and the Sacklers have maintained that, remember, OxyContin is released in early 1996, and they've maintained that, they, that really nobody at the company or in the family <coughs> excuse me, had any inkling that there were, were big problems until early 2000, so four years later. I was able to uncover a very substantial paper, paper trail going back as far as 1997, so just about a year after the drugs released, showing that inside the company at high levels, uh, people were very aware that there was a problem, that this drug was being abused, uh, that people were growing addicted to it, and that people were, were overdosing and eventually dying. Um, so there was knowledge of this, and, and there's, there's sworn testimony to the contrary by uh, company executives and, and Richard Sackler saying, we really didn't know anything until we read stories in the press in 2000. Uh, but in fact, I think I've been able to show that, that that's not true um, and that they knew very well uh, and years earlier. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was um, the legislative reporter here in Ontario. And I, I remember 
uh, having conversations with the Ontario Health Minister about, oh, we're going to now only allow pharmacies to dispense the new tamper-proof OxyContin. Um, when that was introduced, first of all, it wasn't introduced here in Ontario until for a while okay. after, um, which was a real problem. But could you just tell me about what was the uh, consequence of the introduction of this tamper-proof version of the drug? Yeah, it was an unintended consequence. So, you know, for years what had happened was that people would crush the coating on an OxyContin pill in order to either snort it or uh, dissolve it in water and, and inject it, um, thereby kind of over, overriding the time release mechanism on the drug. So they got the whole high right away. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm, I'm recovering from a mild case of COVID, hence the, hence the cough. Hold on, um, what? Are you, are you, are you Okay. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Yeah, I, I had my first shot already before it came, so I'm I'm doing I'm doing fine. But I, I apologize for all the coughing. Well, don't, don't um, apologize. The, I'm um, glad you're all right. No, no. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. The um, so they they had this was the way people had had abused the drug. I mean, a lot of people abused it also just by swallowing the pills whole and and taking too many of them and 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 becoming addicted to to the pills. So in 2010. Uh, Purdue rolled out this reformulated OxyContin pill. And as you say, they didn't introduce it until a year later, actually, in Canada. Um, and the idea was that this would make it harder to abuse the pill. And I, I think that's there's some truth to that. And there was an immediate indication of that, which is that sales of the biggest dose pill, the 80 milligram pill, uh, immediately plummeted by 25% nationwide uh, in the U.S., which was an indication that, uh, you know, roughly 25% of the consumers who were using those pills had been abusing them. Um, and you also saw a kind of related development, which is that um, gradually a lot of people started switching from OxyContin and other prescription pharmaceuticals to heroin. And so you have this kind of terrible irony where you get the reformulation of OxyContin in 2010, which happens to coincide with the beginning of this shift where the opioid crisis really shifts from a prescription pill crisis to a heroin crisis. I'm speaking with Patrick Redden, Keefe, uh, author of a new book, Empire of Pain, uh, that looks into OxyContin and Purdue Pharma. And did we find that actually Mexican cartels all of a sudden realized, well, oh, wait a second, we gotta, we got to ship a lot more quantities north of the border now because once that tamper-proof uh, oxy came in, there was a market there that all of a sudden needed to be fulfilled. That's exactly right. So you had a, uh, you know, I've written in the past uh, for, for The New Yorker, my magazine, about, about Mexican drug cartels. They're exquisitely sensitive to consumer demand. And they became aware that there was a surging demand for heroin uh, and that this was coming from the fact that you had a very big population of people who had an opioid use disorder. Um, these were people who, for whom the on-ramp was OxyContin or other uh, uh, prescription pills. And at that point, you have this, this very large number of people, this market that exists. And the very entrepreneurial uh, Mexican drug cartels were happy to satisfy that market with heroin, which was cheaper uh, and often more available. As it got harder to access prescription drugs, uh, you know, heroin was there. So I've interviewed people who would, you know, talk about 
going to their OxyContin dealer, and the dealer says, I don't have any Oxy today, but I can, could I interest you in a bag of heroin? And you, in your, in your book, you've talked to so many people. I think the, one of the ones that struck me the most was uh, someone who actually used to work on the Sacklers' grounds, on their actual, you know, like on their lawn, and a person that them, himself became addicted to Oxy. Yeah. I mean, there were so many of these stories. You know, I, I made a deliberate choice in uh, writing the book. It's very often the case in, in opioid crisis stories that um, you'll have a kind of a separate character, you know, somewhere in Ohio who's who's wrestling with an addiction to opioids. Um, what I wanted to do as often as possible was tell you the story of people who were actually pretty close to the Sacklers and close to the company. Uh, I tell the story in the book of a woman who was a legal secretary at Purdue Pharma who sat on the same floor as the Sackler family members who had offices in the building. Um, she developed back pain. The company suggested she take OxyContin. She started taking it, became addicted, and was fired by the company after 20 years. The story you're referring to is uh, to a, a young man who who yeah, worked on the grounds of a mansion in the Hamptons uh, in New York that was owned by Mortimer Sackler Jr. And he was addicted to OxyContin. His wife was addicted to OxyContin. They had a baby who uh, was born with a dependence on opioids and had to be weaned off um, as an infant with uh, little drops of morphine in the hospital. And I think part of what I was trying to capture there was that, you know, there's a tendency for the, the billionaire class that has made so much money from uh, from this drug in this instance to, to dismiss these types of people um, the Sacklers have often demonized them, called them the scum of the earth, the people who uh, become addicted to their drug, and to act as though it, you know, it's not happening in their backyard. And here, literally, uh, there was somebody who was working in their backyard who was addicted to the family product. Uh, you mentioned their, their wealth and the amount of money they pulled out. I think I see a re- recent report in the Wall Street Journal this week that said it was $11 billion their family worth. Uh, do you think that that is untouchable? I mean, what happens to the Sacklers going forward? It's a good question. I think it remains to be seen. You know, they um, there are a bunch of states which have sued the family and want to try and claw back some of that money. I think on the theory that the company has pled guilty now to felony charges uh, for felonies that were, were committed during the period of time when the family was pulling all this money out of the business. So these are effectively ill-gotten gains. And you have people like the Attorney General of New York and the Attorney General of Massachusetts who are pushing hard to say, look, we want to keep bringing our cases here and, and figure out just how much money they have. Is it $11 billion? Is it more? I mean, we, $11 billion is, is has been kind of definitively um, uh, proven, but there may, be, there may be much more. We don't know. Um, and the family is pushing hard, as you would imagine, against that. And saying we've made this generous offer to pay uh, four billion, around roughly four billion, four plus billion, um, to help remediate the opioid crisis. And if you if you don't want that, or if you suggest that you're still going to come after us, then we'll take our toys and go home, and you'll get nothing. And so that's where the uh, that's where the negotiation stands today. And I think it's really a question of whether or not these states sign off on um, the Sacklers' proposal, uh, which some states seem inclined to do, and others very disinclined. Patrick Radden-Keefe, thank you so much for your time today, especially since you are clearly under the weather. I, I hope you uh, get better very soon. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. It was nice to talk with you. 
That is Patrick Redden Keefe, and his new book is called Empire of Pain, a tremendous look at the family behind Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin. You can also read uh, Patrick's other's bo- other book. Um, he has two other books. One of them I read, which I could just suggest to you is amazing, and that is Say Nothing. Also the great podcast, Wings of Change. Uh, all great stuff. So thanks again to Patrick Redden Key for coming on.